Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council and Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and today we're going to discuss the growing divide between East and West on the refugee crisis, which is being compared by some policymakers in Brussels to the divide over the Iraq war, which split Europe into old and new parts. I'm joined by two colleagues from ECFR. From Sofia, we have Vesla Chanova, who's ECFR's programme director and, and head of the, the Sofia office. And here in London uh, is Kadri Leek, who's a senior policy fellow on our wider Europe programme. Vesla, why don't you start by laying out what you think the, the main sources of division are between East and West, and, and then we can maybe get into where different member states are and some of the things which are driving these discussions. Yes, thanks, Mark. Um, this whole thing about the division uh, within the EU has emerged uh, basically maybe two or three weeks ago when the size and the magnitude of the refugee crisis became clear. And when it also became clear that some of the Central European countries are not willing to share the burden of uh, taking in refugees. Um, The problem is serious for two reasons. First, it reminds many of the crisis uh, within uh, Europe uh, of 2003, when uh, there was a new and old Europe division uh, around the uh, Iraq war. But also, the second reason is that this is a very fragile moment for Europe on many accounts, the refugee crisis being only one of them. It's obviously about uh, how we define and, and, uh, and share solidarity within uh, the EU on uh, things like uh, Russia, but also on things like uh, uh, the Greek uh, crisis, um, and obviously also on... on uh, uh, Brexit. So there are different layers of this, uh, and I think it's important to have a closer look at this uh, current crisis uh, and see whether this divide is real uh, and whether it's, uh, it is as severe, because it, uh, it uh, would mean several things uh, for the EU uh, if we would take it uh, as, a, as a given and as a kind of... Uh, um, maybe natural um, division between the new and the old member states. So Kadri, um, Vesla is saying that if this is a real divide, it'd be very serious. It's one of many new divisions, but it might not be as simple as um, uh, as an East-West uh, division. But Vesla's Bulgarian uh, compatriot, Ivan Krustev, wrote a piece in the, the New York Times last week where he said that solidarity was the symbol of Eastern Europe three decades ago. But today, a more appropriate symbol would be a bumper sticker reading Eastern Europe, where Donald Trump comes off looking good, Um, which I suppose is partly related to the whole question of walls. Donald Trump has been proudly talking about building a wall between Mexico and the United States and saying how good he is at building walls. And 
it's maybe been less about walls, more about barbed wire and, and closing borders from uh, Eastern European countries like Hungary, Slovakia, saying that it will only take Christians. Um, what do you think lies behind this compassion deficit that people are talking about? I do not think it's outright compassion deficit. Actually, in Ivan's article, what is a key sentence to me is, is another one. Uh, what I see is not a lack of solidarity. What I see is a clash of solidarities, national, ethnic and religious solidarity chafing against our obligations as human beings. And I think that explains a lot because and I think Vesela was very correct when she said that this might be a natural division. Uh, there are many objective reasons that make East Europe, eastern part of Europe less prepared to accept refugees than, than the West. Uh, and, and some of these have to do exactly with the communist past because uh, communism was a violation against the societies of these countries. It tried to impose an alien way of life. And you can see it especially in the Baltic states, especially Estonia and Latvia that are still traumatized by Soviet immigration. Both countries, I mean, both populations were on the verge of becoming minorities in their own countries. And that puts you on the defensive. And I think in many ways that defensive stance is also present in other countries where the demographic balance didn't get that good. But there is still a need to protect your own lifestyle. Uh, Actually, Milan Kundera has written very well about nationalism. In small countries, nationalism is almost always about protecting something. In big countries, it can be about something else. But small country nationalists tend to be focused on preserving something you cherish. And that thing was in danger under communism. And um, so That's really interesting. Because so, I think a lot of people in the West thought that Part of the reason why there was a lack of compassion was that Eastern European countries see themselves as developing and as needing compassion and help from others. But you're saying it's got more to do with the demographic imagination and a fear that the majorities will be swamped and that you'll lose control of, 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 of who you are. Uh, is that just a Baltic thing, Vesla, or is that yeah. something which is true of other countries? Because it's obviously peculiar demographic yeah. circumstances in Latvia and Estonia and countries where you I have say large... They are extreme examples, but also Ivan writes about ethnic disappearance that could be felt in many of the small nations of Eastern Europe. So, you know, that's, uh, that is that is something very real. And I, I think that is actually more important in this debate than, than all the talk about money, needing help, etc. I mean, that is, that is something we all can cope with. But but exactly these questions are the ones that really hurt. So, Vesa, do you think that it, it is something which is uh, true of all of the so-called new member states? I'm coming from a country which has the worst demographics in Europe and which, according to the UN, uh, in by the year 2050, is going to lose one-third of its population. Um Yes, I think the demographic imagination is uh, is obviously something very, very important. However, um, taking a decision now um, on how many refugees you can take um, is not only about that. It is about um, how inevitable you think this is, in a way realizing that this is 
our future, that there is very little we can do. There are these hundreds and thousands uh, that march uh, through southeastern Europe every day, uh, no matter what borders uh, and what walls. And they simply march and they get further uh, towards uh, uh, Germany and, and, and other countries. And this most probably is not going to stop unless we change ourselves to an extent when we don't recognize uh, Europe uh, anymore. Um, so I think Bulgaria being, uh, and probably this is valid also for others in the region, being in this part of Europe, um, people here understand um, that on the one hand, yes, they would like to preserve their world, but on the other hand, they realize that this world is... Uh, is uh, part of the past. And uh, um, the fact that uh, this part of Europe is very heterogeneous, I mean, we have all kinds of minorities, ethnicities, religions. Uh, in Bulgaria, we have 10% Muslims anyway. Um, makes it uh, probably slightly easier, um, but still it's a very difficult discussion. I would like here to highlight maybe Serbia, which is uh, an important part of the puzzle because it's on the route of all those refugees, uh, but also because Serbia looks much better these days uh, than some of uh, the Central Europeans, um, much more welcoming, much more... Um, much more open to, to help and to see the, the pain of the people passing through. Um, of course, they still have the memory of the refugees from the Yugoslav wars. So having people in tents, tents um, uh, people needing food and, and medicine is something that they have not forgotten. Uh, but also, you know, all of us here, we know that we are not the final destination. It's about... Uh, basically letting people pass. Um, and I think the bigger question is, why do we make um, this whole um, debate uh, to be such a, um, such, a painful, such a painful debate where uh, some of the old Europeans who have probably not been sympathetic uh, towards the Eastern enlargement to begin with, now find themselves on the high moral ground of saying, look at all those Easterners uh, who don't, be, don't belong uh, in our club of values anyway. But you say it's about letting people pass. That's exactly what the Hungarians are not doing. I mean, why do you think um, Orban is closing the the borders I mean, would it not be easier just to let everyone go through to to germany and austria first of all orban uh, does not believe in uh, europe uh, the way europe has been uh, developed uh, orban thinks that borders are part of the statehood and statehood is part of uh, um of existing uh, as a country uh, so giving up giving up sovereignty is something that Orban has never liked anyway and he started building the wall actually not against uh, the refugees from uh, North Africa but much more against the migrants, the economic migrants from the Western Balkans who have been uh, passing uh, through Hungary but some of them also remaining in 
in Hungary since um, maybe last uh, fall. So um, I think Orban's uh, viewpoint is different. He claims to be uh, the defendant of a fortress, even if it is a small, the small fortress of the state of Hungary. And if possible, uh, he could, uh, of course, be very happy to sell himself also as the defender of the larger European fortress. So one other question which comes up a lot is about um, what underlies these demographic fears Kadri, you were talking about the experience of the Baltic countries, where it's largely about ethnicity and language. But religion is front and centre of what Viktor Orban in Hungary and Fico in, in Slovakia have been saying. How much of this is about religion and Christian values? Is that something which is just true of Hungary and Slovakia, or is there a kind of wider religious concern? I think there is a full uh, group of pretty objective circumstances, uh, in addition to identity politics, that that make accepting refugees harder for Eastern Europe. Uh, First, they don't have structures ready that one could use when when accepting refugees. You don't have the relevant support groups, support structures, especially if you think of Arabic-speaking support, or uh, say... If you were to get uh, Arabic-speaking communities in your country, at one point you'd need police that can deal with them, etc. And all that is lacking. I mean, Eastern Europe might be prepared to deal with Russians, at least the Baltics are, uh, but, but, but they are clueless when it comes to Arabic speakers. They just have no experience, they don't have language speakers, they don't know that much about the culture... Uh, in that sense, Western Europe is so much more prepared. They have had decades of experience. Easterners do not. And the same with religion, because through the media, you get to learn about the trouble that uh, religious minorities cause in Western countries. You read about Paris riots, you read about Charlie Hebdo, uh, but you don't really hear about the success stories, because it's in media's nature to bring you the trouble rather than good stories. And, and so there is a perception that this is such a complex issue, we are possibly not prepared to deal with it, but it passes by. Okay, so I think we've got a good idea of some of the, the drivers of the Eastern European positions. What would be interesting now would be to, to maybe think about what it means for the EU, because the refugee crisis, the migration crisis, seems in some ways to be even more visceral and um, uh, fundamentally divisive when it comes to values than the Euro crisis or, or the Russian crisis. Do you think that's right, Vesla? What do you think this actually means for the European project? Is this a flash in the pan or is this something which has the ability to, to actually uh, completely uh, unravel the, the European project and the idea of, of us being part of a single community? Unfortunately, I think the the, the second uh, scenario is uh, is uh, kind of not impossible um, anymore. The disintegration of the EU on on basic uh, principles is something that uh, is much more serious than uh, if it would be to disintegrate on uh, external um, geopolitical threats. Uh, or on internal financial issues, simply because this is much more about 
not only about how we live today and how much we can afford to give up, but it's also about what we expect to happen in the next 10, 20 years. And Europe is really a, a project in, um, in the making, has always been like this. Um, when there is no expectation that it will survive, uh, then most probably it won't. Um, so I think it's a crucial time now for Europe to choose a common uh, kind of path on this one. And here this whole um, talk about uh, new and old Europe is not helping at all because um, there are also uh, populists uh, gaining from the refugee crisis in the West um, and there will be I'm sure backlashes also in kind of uh, in societies that claim to be more progressive uh, on the issues, and uh, we're going to to face uh, really um, difficult months ahead on this one. Yeah. I think actually, in many ways, by now Europe is united in helplessness because no one knows. How, how this all is going to end. I mean, refugee flows only are getting bigger and no one knows, you know, how to solve it and, and no one has the capacity to accommodate them all. So I think the division we saw really last week where West was so much more welcoming than the East, that is already changing with Germany saying that, you know, we are overloaded, we have a capacity, we cannot accept anymore, close the borders. So I, I think in a way we are we are all back to square one. We understand that something big is happening and we are unprepared to deal with it. Uh, so that is um, that is good and bad. We are united, but united in a disaster. Well, the except the perception in both east and west is is not of being united. I mean, the Germans have said they'll take eight hundred thousand asylum seekers this year, and um, you know the response of most of uh, you know it's not just an Eastern European thing. They're countries like Britain. Um, which are being uh, yeah. pretty reluctant to take part in this as well. But it is the Eastern Europeans who are vetoing things in, in <clears throat> well, not all of them, uh, I should stress. I but, but a hardcore of Hungary, the Czech Republic, oh. um, Slovakia. Let's see if they actually veto. And yeah, when it comes to domestic debates, one of the most dysfunctional immigration debates I've seen in the UK. So <clears throat> there, are, there are bad debates both, both here and there. And I think some of the Eastern Europeans will fall in line in the end, especially the smallest ones, because when it comes to absolute numbers, they, they can actually deal with uh, what's proposed that they receive. These are not big numbers. And they have a great interest in being good Europeans. So I think the picture will emerge more mixed. Uh, we are just traumatized by the sharp divide that seemed to be there last week. I, I, I think it'll, it'll look different. In, in the weeks to come. But but the problem, of course, will still be there. But Vesa, you seem to be more pessimistic. And we, we, what are you actually worried could happen? Is it that Schengen could end up um, uh, disintegrating? Or do, do you think it could be even bigger than that? Or, I mean, firstly, do you think that that is a danger? I, I think yes. Uh, what we are seeing every day is uh, new walls uh, being built or being talked about. Um, the fact that Hungary has completed the wall, the fence with Serbia and wants to do another one with Romania is, uh, is just very worrying. Uh, that means that all of the countries 
around Hungary are going to start worrying that these refugee flows uh, will be totally uncontrollable because they will now look for at least two or three alternative routes uh, circumventing Hungary f- from the east or from the west. And uh, uh, this is going to create additional internal tension between, between states. Uh, we're talking uh, in some cases about very weak states, uh, some uh, of them in the Western Balkans, have had troubles anyway dealing with organized crime, um, which is now uh, benefiting uh, big uh, big time from the uh, refugee flows. All those people learn that they can uh, make much more money uh, trafficking people rather than trafficking drugs. Um, this um, dynamics is really bad because um, on the one hand... What we had been promising the Balkans was uh, integration, which would start with a free movement. Now, this whole idea of free movement seems to be uh, to be kind of vanishing. But that set aside, I think the main principle of uh, Europe being a space uh, where not only goods people and and so on can move freely, but also a space where you, that where national borders, but also national policies uh, don't matter that much because they're um, getting more unified um, from uh, kind of a centralized uh, perspective. This whole idea right now is uh, under huge uh, pressure. And uh, frankly, I don't want to be in the shoes of... Uh, uh, President Juncker or others in Brussels right now because all these plans for a unified response driven from the EU uh, and by the EU institutions seem to be failing. We saw uh, the meeting of uh, the Justice and Home Affairs Council on Monday uh, which basically ended with no huge movement on the issue Uh, All the decisions that have been taken are just uh, uh, voluntarily to be applied by the member states, uh, which means that uh, really we have, uh, I mean, we are seeing really crumbling of uh, how much the institutions can do. And what about the spillover from this, Kateri? People are telling the Eastern Europeans that solidarity can't just be a one-way street, that they're asking for... Um, solidarity when it comes to Russia and sanctions, etc. Um, there's also talk about the Germans have been talking a lot about the cohesion funds and um, how they might have to be diverted to help deal with the refugee crisis in other countries as a way of putting pressure on on um, new member states. How worried are you that if there is no visible solidarity between Eastern European countries? and their southern and western neighbours on the refugee front, that this might lead to a lack of solidarity when it comes to dealing with Russia or uh, financial transfers? Um, yet again, I would, um, I would link solidarity to strategy. You know, it's, uh, it's always easier to demonstrate solidarity when uh, the other side offers a viable strategy. And that concerns Russia as well as refugees. If, uh, if someone came up with a sort of 
proper and at least seemingly sustainable plan for dealing with the refugees. I think it would be easy to uh, gain some solidarity to support it. And and the same with Russia. You know, many people ask, but, you know, where are we supposed to get to with Russia? And you need to have some sort of answers, you know, what sort of policy will work vis-a-vis Russia and what we can expect and, and then. My view is that we can't expect anything quickly, but policy plan should be there and that makes the whole solidarity thing a lot easier. Now, of course, there are Eastern countries that are very interested that... Um, that Europe stay united vis-à-vis Russia. And I think they they take that well into account when thinking about the refugee issue. And, uh, and, and partly I think that will certainly increase their motivation to uh, demonstrate some solidarity on the refugees. But, but yet again, you know, if we don't have a plan as to where is all this supposed to end, then... Yeah. But, and Vesa, what about the budget side? Because Thomas de Maizière, the German interior minister, said on uh, earlier this week that uh, the EU could impose financial penalties on countries that reject quotas. Um, how much of a factor do you think that will be in decision making in, in Budapest and Bratislava and other places? In Warsaw, most importantly, uh, Warsaw uh, being the biggest recipient of cohesion funds in absolute terms. Um, I think this is, uh, um, this is something very important. Uh, Poland is the country that uh, registers uh, steady growth and uh, undoubtedly it's uh, also uh, due to, to the uh, cohesion funds that uh, Poland absorbs uh, very successfully and has been absorbing for many years now. Um, it, it, is a, it is a threat, at the same time, when we talked about motivations, we didn't mention that some of those countries, and most notably Poland, uh, feel that they will have obligations towards all the Ukrainians who cross the border and would uh, settle uh, in, in Poland. There was the number of one million Ukrainians that uh, are anticipated to to move to Poland one way or the other until the end of 2015. And this is undoubtedly a very, very big number. Um, Of course, um, I mean, on the one hand, the Poles cannot call them refugees uh, because that would make Ukraine look as a failing state uh, or as a dangerous, unsafe state of origin, uh, which nobody wants. Uh, But also... um, This uh, falls a little bit into the trap of uh, um, uh, religion and anthropology. Uh, We prefer the um, blonde, um, uh, blue-eyed Ukrainians uh, um, and not uh, not the Arabs. I, you know, I think it's a it's a very difficult picture uh, to handle. Uh, It will very much depend on how. Uh, articulate the Central Europeans can be in explaining their motives, how well their motives are uh, really um, argued for and uh, how how much they can uh, um, can fight this perception that they're being simply egoistic Um, and what Ivan Krastev has been uh, calling lack of compassion 
uh, is also something uh, something to to remember because uh, these are countries where uh, the Catholic Church has a stronghold uh, and compassion is uh, obviously a basic uh, kind of Christian uh, value. So, uh, to which extent uh, Central Europeans will succeed to to explain or to change their position in such a way that it makes sense both to their uh, publics but also to the rest of Europe. Uh, uh, this will be this will be central also in terms of uh, decisions about the funds. Yeah, no, I, I think that it's going to be pretty difficult to. Um explain these positions in a way that will have resonance at somewhere like Stockholm because either you sound like you're being selfish because um, uh, you say that we're developing country we don't have the resources we don't have the the infrastructure or sounds like you're being racist because you say we want to carry on being Estonian Christian whatever um, and we want to keep a, a majority of the population with this kind of ethnic group so neither of those arguments are going to cut much ice um, I at the same in... time Stockholm has a pretty good track record in understanding East European history so they might yet surprise us but there are other capitals of course so maybe just last question very very briefly in a couple of words to each of you do you think that this is uh, either as bad or worse or much less serious than the 2003 uh, divide between East and West. Vesta, why don't you go first? I don't think it's uh, it's a real divide. I think uh, it's a problem that some member states have. Some of them are Central European. Others are elsewhere in Europe. And, uh, and this will transpire in the next weeks when they start really hard talks about uh, money. Um, and... Uh, uh, nevertheless, I think the situation is uh, much graver than in 2003 in terms of the internal dynamics in the EU, the sense of helplessness and, uh, and the lack of, um, of clarity and, and support for the EU institutions. Kadri? I think the actual problem we are facing is, is really bad. I mean, we do not know what to do with the Middle East that is just unraveling uh, with no end in sight. Uh, that said, I, I wouldn't overemphasize the divisions. I mean, these are natural uh, when we are helpless, when we have different instincts. But, um, you know, I, I think this is not the crucial thing. The crucial thing is that none of us knows what to do. Okay. Well, that was a pretty uh, op- uh, honest but <laughs> inconclusive end <laughs> to, to this discussion. I'm sure we'll come back to it a lot in the months ahead. Uh, we have one last thing to do here, which is our final bookshelf segment. Um, Vesa, what's on your bookshelf this week? Um, would you allow me to talk about a movie instead of a book? Absolutely. Because it, None of us uh, have got time to read anymore, so the movie sounds very <laughs> No, good. no, it's, it, it just fits very well the, um, uh, the uh, topic of our discussion today. It's a movie, it's a Bulgarian movie called The Judgment. Um, and it's a movie about um, a young guy who has to smuggle refugees through the border um, in a... In a lorry that usually transports milk so it's kind of a fridge lorry and he brings those people through the border from uh, Turkey uh, 
And uh, the guy who is paying him is someone who, uh, back in communism, was um, uh, his uh, his um, commander in line in the communist army, which was guarding that same border uh, from uh, people from Eastern Europe trying to escape uh, towards Greece and Turkey. Um, and it's very interesting how history plays uh in the life of that one generation, basically, uh, here in the uh, southeastern uh, edge of Europe. Uh, the judgment uh, is uh, select is going to be uh, one of the uh, foreign language nominations for the Oscars. So the movie is, is, uh, is worth seeing. Fantastic. Does it exist in English or with English subtitles? Great. And what about you, Kadri? What have you been reading or watching? Well, I have just received a new book, um, but I haven't properly read yet, but I still feel confident to advertise. Uh, that is by an Estonian scholar, a professor of, on international law, and it's called Russia's Approach to International Law. So that explains a lot why Russia sees many of uh, the world problems, including actually the uh, root causes of the refugee crisis, so differently from us. For Russia, the international order is still a very state-centric thing, uh, international order of 1945. And actually that book offers many very useful insights into, into Russian thinking, something I can hugely benefit from. Sounds fascinating. So I'm not going to mention a book, but I'll re-plug uh, the article by Ivan Krastev on Eastern Europe's compassion deficit, which came out in the New York Times on the 8th of September, which covers a lot of the, the ground that we have done today very elegantly and efficiently. So that brings to an end a very interesting discussion on the growing east-west divide in Europe caused by the refugee crisis. If you want to know more, please check out our website, uh, we have a special page on the refugee crisis debate at www.ecfr.eu, which brings together all sorts of up-to-date information on the migration crisis and what Europe can do. Recent commentaries include how Europe can deal with the asylum crisis by Anna Teron, Europe's jigsaw response to the refugee crisis by François Godemont. And there will be links to all of these publications and the books and films that we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu. From Kadri Leek and Vesla Chanova, this is Mark Leonard from ECFR. The researcher for our ECFR podcast is Ulrike Franke. Our editor is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro. Thank you very much and talk to you soon.